um, there's this bank in Canada. Uh, I used to live there. Uh, it's called Scotia Bank, and they have this slogan. It's their main slogan, and the slogan is, "You're richer than you think." Okay, and in every commercial that Scotia Bank puts out, they put out the slogan, "You're richer than you think." And what I, what I think they're trying to say through the slogan is that no matter the amount of money that you have, that there's always that you could do more with it through their bank, right? Like investing or putting into different accounts or whatever. Basically, whatever money you have, you, if you make better use of it, you're actually richer than you think. It, makes, it reminds me of this, and I know I'm dating myself, but there used to be uh, a song um, way back then in the 90s. Uh, I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I was a, you know, and there's a, basically this guy, he's, he's really short, and he wishes like he's a baller, and he could, you know. That's kind of the idea, that we all wish we had more. In particular, we wish we were richer. We wish we had more. And this bank is trying to tell you, no matter how much you think you have, you actually have more than you think. And if you look up this phrase, you're richer than you think on Google, you'll find a bunch of different articles trying to convince you of the exact same thing, that you are indeed richer than you think. And the two approaches that most of these websites or most of these articles take is one, they say if you have a house, if you have food, if you have a car, or if you or your parents have a job, you are, we are all, basically everyone in here, is in the top 1% or 3% of the world in terms of the economy or in terms of your status. And so therefore, you're richer than you think. It's basically saying, like, think of all the poor people in the world. That's one way people kind of go about it. The second way people try to convince you that you're richer than you think or that you have more than you realize is this mindset change. Like you're trying to become more positive, right? To have a positive outlook on life, right? Look at the things that you're blessed with. You have health. You have family. You have food. You have love. And they basically tell you, if you have these things, you should go out and appreciate it more. So basically, if you have a family, they say, you're richer than you think. Because if you would spend time with the family that you have, then you'll realize that you're richer than you think. Or they'll say, you're healthy. You're not injured or you're not handicapped or you don't have, you know, major ailments. Then you should go out and do something with your body. Like go for a run or go ride a bike or do whatever and realize the things that you have. And therefore, that in doing those things and doing more of it, you will realize that you're richer than you think. Now... If you consider both of these things, they're helpful to a certain degree. And I think you can and maybe we ought to apply some of these things in our lives, but I don't think it actually changes the reality of what you have or don't have, right? Like you have this, and it's kind of like a different way to look at it and spin it to try to convince yourself that you have more. But I think as we learned last week from Pastor Goose, that Ephesians, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and to all the churches in the area then and now, I would say, Paul is, I think, trying to say the exact same thing, but way more. That as he would say, I think, Paul would like to tell all of us, you are so much more richer. I know that's not an English sentence. So much more richer than you realize or care to imagine. Pastor Goose told us last week that through the uh, letter to uh, Ephesus in Ephesians, that Paul tells his church, that they're so rich, that they have immense riches, and that it should impact how we live, that it gives us this new reality. If you looked at the um, banner, it's this uh, set of eyeglasses, right? And in it, you, you see kind of a, a city, but it's blurred, but it says that you see a new reality through these glasses, that in Christ, we, you, I, all of us are richer than be, rich beyond our wildest imaginations. And if you look at the text that we're about to read for a second, Paul says it right up in the beginning. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? 
Blessed be God, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Basically, what he's trying to say is, in Jesus, God has blessed us with every blessing that you and I could possibly imagine. We are rich because we have every blessing in the heavenly places. Or as my professor likes to say, in a relationship with Jesus, we discover that the goal of the vast eternal plan that God has is to make you and I, make us very rich. That God's goal in our relationship with him is to make us rich. Now at this point you might say, but pastor, um, let me be real with, you, real with you for a second. I'm a Christian, or maybe I'm interested in being one, but I don't feel very rich or if I look at my Christian friends, they don't seem very rich. In fact, TBH, my non-Christian friends seem to have a lot more than me, and I'm a Christian. So what's the deal? Right? And I used to feel this way, that my non-Christian friends or whatever either did more, had more, whatever the case might be. But I think the problem is that though we are, that though you are, though we are richer than we think, it's that you and I don't realize that we're rich. You're rich, I'm rich, but we don't see it. You do not know it. And I think it's because the riches and the blessings that God gives us aren't the obvious ones. That we can't see them without the help of the gospel. We can't see them without new glasses. If you don't know, I'm like basically blind without these things. I have a negative 5.5 in both. Everything just looks like a blur. It looks like that banner where like, all the lights are just blurry. I have, I have no idea who any of those people in the back are other than from my memory. But you put them on, all of a sudden things crystallize. We can't see the blessings because we need new glasses. We need help. We need to see and know our new reality. We need to see and experience and understand this new reality with a new set of glasses given to us by the gospel of Jesus, specifically through the letter to the Ephesians. And so today and next week, I invite you to dive deeper, to put on the Ephesians glasses, if you will, in hopes that we will today and next week realize continually you're so much more richer than you realize or dare to imagine. So if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And by the way, for the next long while, you should just bookmark your Bible because we're going to be in Ephesians through and through, so it'll be easy for you to find. Ephesians chapter 1, and then we're going to be verses 3 through 14 really quickly. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. I'm reading in the NASB. Ooh, our font is like teal. That's cool. Sorry. Tur Who said turquoise? Isaac, I heard you. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Is that turquoise? That is turquoise. You're probably right. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his kind intention, which he proposed in him, purposed in him, sorry, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him, Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works with things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to praise of his glory. In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Bless you and let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We pray as we dig into this word, we pray that we would get new glasses to realize that we are so much more richer than we would even dare to imagine. It's just that most of us, for those who call us believers, for those who call ourselves Christians, and for those who are looking to you, maybe in hopes of finding you, that we do not realize because we need to see things differently because we need a new reality to which you give us in Jesus, through the cross, through the empty grave, and through his ascension. So, Father, we pray that you would speak in and through me. Though I am weak and feeble, we pray that your words would be heard, not mine. Indeed, that you would bless us so that we can be a blessing to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a little background, right? If you weren't here last week or if you uh, forgot. Paul, he's in jail. He's under arrest, and this is a serious matter, okay? And Paul is writing a letter to the Ephesians, a church in the city called Ephesus, But Paul, all of a sudden, as he's writing in prison, he realizes that more than he being in prison, the location, he realizes he's in Christ, that he's in the heavenly places, that though he is under arrest, that more than that, he has been arrested in Jesus. And by which then, because of this, he is so much richer than everyone else around him would think of him, right? Because he's in jail. No, you're not going to ever think that someone who's in jail is rich, But Paul realizes though he's in jail, he's arrested to something else, which is Jesus, and that makes him so much more rich than everyone else realizes. And interestingly, the section that we just read, I paused, but I probably shouldn't have. The section we just read describing the riches that God gives us, the blessing, is one long sentence in Greek. If you look in the original Greek from verse 3 to 14, there's literally not a single punctuation mark other than the period at the end of verse 14, which means it's a run-on sentence. And maybe the run-on sentences of all run-on sentences ever written. And if you were to write a sentence like this for your paper or a paper that you have to turn in, well, I'll just tell you, don't. Because you'll get marked off really poorly. Well, you got to ask, why does Paul, who's a very, very intelligent man, might I add, write like this? He's one of the smartest people back in those days. Why would you write this run, long run-on sentence? I was tempted to read it in one breath, which would have been comical, so I didn't do it. But why does he do this? Now, there's a lot of different theories as to why this, uh, this happens, but I think the one that makes most sense is that Paul, in prison, writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, he starts by saying, I've been given every blessing in Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And as he thinks about all the blessings, he gets so caught up in the riches that he just goes off. He just writes as fast as he can. He's just putting everything down on paper, everything while it's fresh in his mind so that he wouldn't forget. And he forgets, interestingly, to put punctuation in and through the blessing. When I first moved to Vancouver in 2008, my sister, you might have met her, Gloria, um, she and I, we used to write emails back and forth almost daily. And so, you know, we'd just kind of be like, every other day we'd write each other, how are you doing, da-da-da, and we'd give uh, updates on all these things, right? 
And back in those days, we actually did this all the time, and you're probably like, why didn't you just text or email or a phone call? Well, back in those days in 2008, international calling was really expensive. I know I'm old, and so we had to go the email route. Now, when we did it, most emails that we would write were very composed. We would take a look and be like, hey, this is what I did today. This happened today. Uh, how was your day? Yada, yada. And be very composed, organized, and kind of have sections and all that kind of stuff. But every once in a while, I would get an email and there would be no indentations, there would be no paragraph markers, there would be barely any periods, and it would just be one big, long, big block like this of text. And every single time you would read through it, you would realize that what Gloria was trying to tell me was this major thing that happened in her life. And so she got in front of the computer, and she's like, I gotta tell Opa about this, and she would just, just keep typing. And she just would think, and just keep typing everything that came to mind, and at the end, rather than editing, she would just hit send. And you'd get this long block of text. And I imagine for her, when I ask her, she's basically just speaking and just typing whatever she's saying. Have you ever done that? It happens a lot when I write sermons. It's like, back in, uh, uh, Judy's looking at me back there, but three or four years ago, I used to preach way long. And if you looked at my, like my, my thing, my outline thing, uh, it was literally like, it was literally like that. It was just a long block of text. And then that's why I would end up going on forever because you can't ever make out what you're writing. You're just kind of going off the top of your mind. Or it's like when Christina comes back and she has a meeting or she, she goes to Joyful Sister or something like that. Or she goes and meets with some of the uh, young adult gals or whatever and they come back. The moment she enters that door, she's so excited about all the things that happens that she just goes, honey, I got to tell you something. I'm like, yeah, just verbal diarrhea all over the place. That, I think, is what's happening here. No breathing, no time to exhale, no time to structure. Just excited, caught up in the thing that it just spills over. Too excited to gather his thoughts, Paul was. And you don't want to forget, so you just go. That Paul is so excited about every spiritual blessing that he can think of that he just writes and writes and writes. And in the end, he's jotted down the seven most exciting or most important blessings of the every blessing that he talks about. Which means, in my opinion, that we should then pay very close attention to the seven that he writes out. And that's exactly what we're going to do today and next Sunday. Now, important note before we dive into the seven blessings, that when Paul writes spiritual blessings, he's not making this kind of dichotomy comparison between physical and spiritual, which I think happens a lot in the church. A professor of mine named Gordon Fee, uh, one of the most brilliant New Testament minds in the world, I think, says that most often when you read spiritual or anything related to the Spirit in the New Testament, you should think about the Holy Spirit, the third part of our triune God. And so basically here, in the same ways, when Paul says spiritual blessings, he's talking about the blessings that the God, the Holy Spirit, makes real into our lives for those who follow Jesus. Now let me list the seven blessings, and I should have had this on the screen, but I'm forgetful. As I told you, I'm getting old. My memory is going. I forgot to do it. But let me just list them for you. Next week, I'll have them on the screen, and so you'll have it better. But here are the seven. I'm just going to list them off really quickly. And we'll go to the first three, and then the next four next Sunday. The first blessing is chosen by God. Second is predestined to adoption. Third is redemption through blood. Fourth is the forgiveness of our sins. Five is insight into the mystery. Six is an inheritance. And seven is sealed in the Holy Spirit. I read it really fast on purpose so you don't have time to write it down and we can just focus on the three that we're talking about today. So the first, chosen by God in verse four. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Paul, from the jump, as he's writing about the blessings, doesn't pull any punches, and he goes right for the gusto. The word choose or chosen is the Greek word elexato, which means election. This word in the Christian faith is a hotly debated topic because it tells us that God chose us, you and I. God elected you and I, those who are Christians, before the foundation of the world, which if you understand what that is, that's a long time ago. 
Now, the reason why this is problematic is because it suggests that God chose some and didn't choose others. Which, if that's true, you probably think, wait, that's really unfair. It's kind of like in elementary school when everyone gets together to play kickball. I don't know if you play kickball anymore. Whatever the game was, you usually pick two captains, the two best players usually, and everyone else sits in a crowd, and then the two captains go, yep, I want Kevin, I want Ben, I want Ashley, I want whatever, and just go. And then, of course, as the list dwindles down, it's just the kids at the end who are kind of like, please pick me. I don't know if you've ever happened, but at one time, I legit didn't get picked. Like, they played the game without me. <laughs> me and this one other Chinese kid. <laughs> right? That we think that when you're being elected, like in a game of kickball, that if you are elected, then those who aren't elected and chosen are rejected. Now, you might be wondering, why does Paul start with this one? Because it's not the easiest one to explain. But the reason why I think Paul chooses this, which is indeed a hot topic in the church, because if you're understanding implications, if God chooses some but doesn't choose others, and the ones he doesn't choose, they go to you know where, and then the one he does choose, they go to you know where, that kind of a thing, right? So why does he start there? Because for me, election and choosing expresses most fully, most vividly, the wonder of the gospel. Because here's what it means. It means that before anything happened, before the foundation of the world, before God creates, he, because he's God and he's way bigger than us, chooses the people, and he has chosen then Paul. Which means then that you and I being chosen or Paul being chosen has nothing to do with what you and I do or what Paul did or didn't do. It's only grounded in what God does and what he wants to do. And Paul knows this. Pastor Goose told us last week, Paul, before he became Paul, was a guy named Saul. And Saul's main objective in life was literally to wipe the name of Jesus Christ out of the history books. He not only wanted to kill every Christian on earth, he wanted to get rid of the idea of Jesus and Christianity all together. He was going around destroying everything, and all of a sudden, as he's on this road to Damascus, Jesus meets him, and in that moment, he finds out that not only is Jesus not a fake that Jesus is indeed alive, that Jesus loves him and chooses him to be his. And all of that is just too much for Paul to understand, so he writes it. Paul knows what it means to be picked. Though he was literally the enemy of Jesus, he knows what it means to be picked even before anything had happened in the world. And Paul can't quite just, just, just grasp it. But again, you might be saying, but pastor, cool for Paul, cool for you. But if I'm not a Christian or my friend's not a Christian or my mom's not a Christian or someone I know is not a Christian, what does it mean for them? What about everyone who isn't or has not been or wasn't chosen in the past? Now, I'll tell you honestly that this topic is one that the theologians and the pastors in the world have not come to a definitive kind of like a solid one-to-one -one conclusion. There's a lot of fancy terms related to this. Double predestination, reprobation, infralapsarianism. And if you try to understand all of it, trust me, you'll get a headache. I tried, and I literally had a migraine for days. So we're not going to try to figure it all out, but rather what we're going to do is take a step back and focus on what I think is absolutely clear about the blessing that Paul chooses to celebrate. Because for Paul, to be elected or chosen by God is the best news one could write about.
It's why Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means then, for me, that election and choosing should always result in worship and blessing. And any talk about election or choosing that doesn't is wrong. And we're heading down the wrong way. So here's what we do know and what we want to focus on, and we'll get to the next two in a bit. We know that no one chooses God, that God is the only one that chooses us. Paul says in Romans that no one is righteous, not a single person. We don't choose God no matter how much you think you love God. And if you read the Bible, it's the story of the Bible. Paul was a chosen one. He was chosen, though he hated God. The disciples, if you think they're cool, they were chosen, called by God, not looking for Jesus in any kind of a way. Every major character, if you kind of look through the Bible, was always chosen. David, chosen. He was in the field. He was called in. Chosen. Though each one of us, I think, is seeking something. We want something to fill our souls, to fill the emptiness that we have. None of us are actually seeking God on their own, which means then that unless God seeks you and I, us, no one will be found. That if God did not choose, does not choose, or will not choose to pursue us, then we would all be lost. And again, this is at the place where you're screaming in your minds, Pastor Pete, that's unfair, that's injustice. What about the people that aren't chosen? But like I said, God's not me or you. You and me on the playground, when we don't choose someone versus another, we choose someone to reject another, but God doesn't do that. God's choosing does not necessarily imply God's rejecting. Just because God chooses someone does not mean he rejects everyone else. This isn't recess and this isn't a game of kickball. It seems logical in our minds that when we choose something, we're saying no to something else. I've already said to you that as a human being, when you say yes to something, you say no to something else. But for God, it doesn't work this way. For example, God chooses a nation, Israel. He makes it his nation. He says, you are my nation, my people. But did you know why he chose Israel? He tells them, I am choosing you in order that you would bless every other nation in the world. Blessed to be a blessing. When God chooses the 12 disciples, he wasn't rejecting everyone else. Indeed, no. He chooses the 12 and through them, the Christianity faith blows up like you've never seen. And they all, many of them die for their faith so other people can have it. When God chooses... He chooses so that others might be blessed. When he loves the disciples, Jesus says, he tells them, love one another in this way so that when people see your love, they'll want to join in and get in. God's election then always has an outward and other-oriented goal. It's why Paul starts here. Do you see? Because if you're elected, it means you're totally secure in every way, shape, and form. It means your salvation isn't based on anything you do or don't do. Again, quoting my professor, he says, not what we do, not what we didn't do, not even what God knows of what we might do or think of doing is the basis of you and I, our salvation. The fact that you and I are Christians is grounded in God's free and sovereign choice as God. So that, as Paul writes in verse 4, that we might be blameless and holy before him. The word holy in Hebrew means set apart, but it also means whole. 
It means pure. It means clear. It means clean. It means without blemish. And let's be honest. Who doesn't want to be pure, clean, holy, and without blemish? God chooses you and I. Not because you and I are holy and or whole and or pure and or clear and or clean without blemish. He chooses us because he knows better than we can that one day you and I, we will be holy and whole through and through. That we will be like God, full of beauty, full of life, full of glory, full of light. You are chosen to be holy so that everyone else in the world will see how holy God is and they will want to be holy just like him. You are so much richer than you think and or can imagine. Number two, Paul says that we are predestined to adoption as sons. As chosen people, as elected people in Christ, we have a destiny, we have a goal. We are predestined, which is to be then adopted. Now, I know adoption in our uh, current context has a bit of a negative connotation, like no one really wants to be adopted, because to be adopted means someone gave up on you and someone else had to take you in, right? And so to be adopted is like, eh, I don't know if I, you know, nobody really wants to share whether they're adopted or not. But back in the day, it was a little different. If you think back to last week when Pastor Goose talked about his air, hunter, air hunters, H-E-I-R, air hunters, right? It's this idea that people are looking for someone's air and they can't find anyone. And so they have to go like back into the, you know, the, the genealogies and find someone. Now back in the day, it was kind of like this. Wealthy men in the world, in the Roman world, if you were one of those people who weren't able to have a son and therefore have an heir, then what you had to do, because the world was kind of sexist, not kind of, really sexist, but what you had to do was you had to find a man to be your heir. And so what this wealthy man would do, since he doesn't have his own son, he would go, then look amongst his servants and be like, ah, you, you're the best of all, you're the best of the bunch. Now you will become my heir. And that servant would have then been adopted to become the heir of said rich person. And that servant would have gone from rags to riches in an instant because of the adoption. So adoption, to be adopted in the Roman day, was a big deal. It meant you struck the lottery in many sense. Because though you didn't deserve it, someone chose you to get what you did not deserve. So Paul tells us that we were predestined, given a destiny to being adopted as sons and daughters. Now one quick thing, and I've gone over this before, but many people take offense to the fact that the Bible is written in very male-dominated language, that we're adopted to sons, right? But before you take offense know that back in the Roman days, again, the goal was to be a son because being a woman, unfortunately for the ladies in your back then, being a woman did you no good. So even if you were a woman, you wanted to be known as a son because it gave you the status and it gave you the things you needed. So what Paul is saying is not that, that not, he's not neglecting women. We clearly know Jesus loves women and he appreciates them and he all puts them high. What he's saying is even women can be adopted as sons and given that placement in God's kingdom. Now, Paul says that a blessing that we get is that we are adopted, predestined to be adopted as sons. Now, I find that funny. Why do you think I find that funny? Adopted as sons of who? It's not a trick question. God. Now, I find that funny. Why? Because God has a son. 
And if you have a son, you don't need to adopt nobody because you already have an heir to pass along your inheritance and your riches. And let me just remind you, God not only has a son, he's got the best son ever to have walked the earth, blameless and holy and perfect. So why is he adopting anyone? Because he's God. Out of his sheer grace, God adopts you and I. God chooses to share with you what only belongs to Jesus. Though he has a perfectly good son and he can give all of his inheritance to his son, God chooses to take all of us who aren't worthy of said blessing and riches and then he chooses us and says, you can share with what I'm going to give to my son which only belongs to him. You and I, we're lucky bums. You and I, we're much richer than we can ever imagine and or think. Now I hope you realize what this means. Another professor of mine, a famous theologian, J.I. Packard, he says, that adoption is the highest privilege a Christian can have. More higher, and again, bad English, more higher than salvation or justification. Now, if you don't know what those words mean, justification means that God, when he looks at you, though you're a sinner and you should be blamed and you should have the penalty with which you deserve, he says, nope, you're not guilty. You are innocent and you're clean. And that's the way that you can be saved and go to heaven and be with God because we are blameless and not guilty. Now, that's a big deal to say adoption is a bigger thing than salvation or even maybe justification. But here's why he says this. Because to be justified or to be declared not guilty means that God is our judge, right? That as judge, he nails down the anvil and he says, you are not guilty. But if we are adopted as sons, that means God is no longer our judge, but he is our father. He is our daddy. He is our, as Koreans would say, appa. We move from the courtroom to the living room. We move from the bench to the feasting dining table, from law to love. See, for God to declare us as blameless is awesome, but to be loved and said, you are my son and my daughter, is so much greater than to be declared as justified or blameless through adoption, we get to join in on the dance that the Trinity's been dancing. Through adoption, we get to go home with Jesus. Through adoption, we get to go and look at our Heavenly Father and says, Appa, hold me. The running joke in our house is that Kara is a daddy's girl. She's very jealous after my love, and I'm thankful. But Kara makes it very clear that Christina, my wife, is my honey, but Kara is my baby. And if you ever try to convince her that she's not my baby, she might hit you. Why? Because there's nothing greater to my baby girl than being Appa's baby. And we have been adopted as sons and daughters of our great Abba Father. All because Jesus, in his kind intention and his will, wants to share with you the inheritance of the kingdom and eternity and life and joy and beauty and glory forever and ever so that you and I, those who aren't holy, human beings sinful to the core, can enter in and go from courtroom to living room, from bench to dining table, from law to love, because God is a God who loves to adopt loves to dance, 
loves to enjoy and to love forever and ever. You are so much freaking richer than you realize or could ever imagine. Third blessing, the last one. Redemption through the blood. Through the blood? Blood. For Paul, when he writes redemption, redemption isn't a synonym for salvation, which I think a lot of us may think, right? That to be redeemed means to be saved or to have eternal life. For Paul, the word here and the people back in those days in the Roman world, this word meant something different. The Greek word here is apo... Let me... The Greek word is apolutrosis, okay, which literally means to release or to loose. And you can use this word in many ways. You can say like, I've loosed my shoelaces. I've loosed my belt. You can lose anything that is tight and or bound. But the way that people use this word the most back in those days is to release or to lose a slave, a prisoner, a refugee in some ways, anyone who's got debt, and to release them, back in those days, you had to make a payment, a cost. If you remember, again, Pastor Goose talked about Abraham Lincoln and the slave. And he frees the slave girl, but he has to pay for her freedom. And then she chooses to go with him. But for her to be free, Abraham Lincoln and any slave owner had to buy, to pay, and then to release them. So Paul is telling us that when God chooses us, when he's chosen us, and given us a destiny to be adopted sons and daughters. To do that, he had to release us and redeems us, which means then that you and I, before we can be chosen, before we can be adopted, are in bondage to something that needs freeing, and that bondage is sin. You and I are enslaved to sin. That apart from grace, apart from the cross, apart from the blood, that you and I will always be in bondage. That to be adopted as a son, to be chosen into his kingdom, that you have to be set free and someone has to do so. And I think Paul knows this better than any of us would because he knows what it means to be in prison. He's been in prison many times and he was in prison when he wrote this. And Paul understands though. See, he's in prison underneath a crazy dictator who at any moment could say, bring that man up and you just slice his head off, and that would, they could have done that and it would have been no problem. But Paul realizes that the bondage to sin, being imprisoned to sin, is so much greater and stronger than any imprisonment to any crazy dictator, which is why I think Paul's not sweating the fact that he's in jail, because he knows that though he may be physically in prison, he is free in his soul, that his sin has been released. He's been released from the curse of sin and death and, and judgment and penalty, and he knows that no matter whether he's in prison or anywhere else, he is free, and the reality of the gospel tells him that he's been redeemed, released and free, loosed from the grips of sin, death, fear, anxiety, or anything that the world can throw at you. It's why the sentence is just one long Because Paul cannot withhold. He cannot hold in the joys of these blessings. That though he's in jail, he realized he's not in jail, he's in Christ in the heavenly places. And he's been blessed with every spiritual blessing given to God through Jesus. And he belonged to God because God freed him, God chose him, and God adopted him. And that he became the richest man on the planet because he realized what we had. And the thing you and I must realize is that's who you are. 
that you're far richer than you realize and or even dare to imagine. That's what it means to put on these new glasses given by the gospel. That's what it means to sing that Christ is enough. That's what it means to do what we do here each week and to live the lives that we live because you are far richer than you dare to realize or you dare to imagine or care to maybe even want to be. But may I invite you through and through to realize the immense riches that you've been given, the glories to which you are alive, and the blessings that God has given you and will continue to give you each and every single day. And next week, we'll talk about the rest of the blessings. And let me tell you, they're just as good as the ones we covered today. You. And you can fill in that name as I invite the praise team up. You can fill that name in. You. I, Peter Chung, am so much more richer than I think, realize, or even dare to be able to imagine. And I pray and I hope that you will put on the glasses that will help you to see the new reality that will then allow you to live in the truth of the gospel rather than walking around like blind people, walking around like people who don't know. And in and through your life will utterly be changed. That you will live life in Christ, filled with the blessings as chosen, adopted, freed people of God. Let us pray. Lord, we are so we are so rich beyond all of our imagination. But God, we admit to you that oftentimes it's hard to see. That we need a perspective change. We need a vision change. We need change in our hearts to be able to see that which we have in you. For no one else in this world chooses those who are not worthy of being chosen. No one else adopts when they already have a son to pass their inheritance along to. No one else frees and releases by taking that same shame upon the cross, by taking the penalty that was not yet deserved. But you do. And because you do, we can. And because you are, we are alive in you. Help us to see, O oh God. In and through the trials and the craziness of life, we pray that you would help us to see the truth of your glory, truth of your blessing. That indeed, we are far richer than we dare to think, realize, and or imagine. So help us this day as we walk out of this place, as we respond in song, that this would be an overflowing, an out overflowing, an outpouring of our riches, of our feeling, that indeed as Paul did, that we would raise our hands, we would raise our voices, we'd raise our hearts and our spirits and say, you, God, blessings be unto you, for you are the God unlike any other. 
May your name be praised in everything we do. Help us, free us to respond and sing this day and to live as blessed, chosen, adopted, and free people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us as we respond.